The book of Revelations, the Greek word is apocalypsis, which actually means the unveiling or the uncovering. Often when they build a statue, they'll put a big covering over it and get everybody together and have the band and the mayor's there and they cut the cord and allow the unveiling of the statue to be. But it's so neat to know that at the end of the Bible of 66 books, that the Lord wants to not only speak of the present condition and of the past condition of man, but he wants to speak of what's going to happen to planet Earth in the future. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 what happened before anything. In the beginning was God. And the very first thing God ever did on planet Earth. And the book of Revelations is going to tell us the last thing God is going to do on Earth. And Peter tells us that all the earth and all the heaven, every bit of it, is going to melt with a fervent heat. And everybody who does not know the Lord is going to be thrown into a place called the Lake of Fire, Gehenna, a place where the devil, God's prepared for the devil and his angels, but he's also prepared for everyone who doesn't take that one way of escape through Jesus Christ. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you don't extrieve that one way through Jesus Christ, then you'll be thrown into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels as well. And earth is going to be melted with a fervent heat and all the heavens as God's going to make a brand new heaven and a brand new earth for those who have taken that way of escape through him uh, there to live with him in all of eternity with heaven. And believe me, we're not going to be playing harps up there. I don't care to play harp. But to be with Jesus, yeah. And I just think of all the cool things he made here. I love hiking up a mountain or repelling down a cliff. I haven't done it in a long time, but boy, I did a lot when I was high school, and it was a blast. Or catching a wave and surfing. You see these guys parachuting or taking a scuba diver and diving down and looking at all the incredible things in the ocean. I was just at SeaWorld a few weeks ago and looking into those exhibits and my kids are just blown away. Look at that fish. Stripes on it. Look at that one. It has dots on it. Look at that one. It, man, it's just almost like fluorescent. It's lighting up. and It's incredible. All the fun things that God's planned for us. It says he's given us all things to enjoy. Now, if you figure he made earth this much fun, and he did it in six days, and he's been preparing heaven now for a couple thousand years, believe me, we are not going to be sitting around yawning, playing our harps. <laughs> We're going to be having a blast. And it's going to be with Jesus. And so we're going to see the unveiling that God's going to tell us concerning the future condition of the earth. And we get to see how this all came about. The unveiling of Jesus Christ. The revelation which God gave him to show his servants. That's us. Things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel or by his messenger. Uh, Angelos can also be translated a messenger to his servant John. Now, to God a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Shortly, in God's mind, is quick. But the word here also is translated in Matthew or Luke 18 verse 8 as speedily. 
God's bringing these things about. As soon as possible, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. We find out in Peter that God is not slack concerning this promise of coming back. He's actually waiting for you to come to the Lord if you haven't come to the Lord yet. Aren't you thankful He didn't come yesterday? And here you are today in an empty building. Oh, someone invited me to church tonight and I showed up, but they weren't there. Boy, aren't you glad? The Lord waited another day. He's not slack. He's coming speedily, but He waited maybe today. Tonight He could be coming back. But He waited one more day, an opportunity for you to come to that one way of escape through Jesus Christ. So He is coming back, and He's coming back quickly. And it says, uh, who bore witness, or literally bore record, to the Word of God. They didn't have video cameras back in those days, so John just has to tell us about it. And to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. Now blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it, for the time is near. There's a threefold blessing of this book of Revelations. One, if you read it, and if you come on Tuesday nights, you'll be reading it with me, because we're going to go verse by verse through it. There's going to be a blessing in your life because you're reading it. I think all of God's Word's a blessing, and I think you get blessed any part of it you read. But there is a special supernatural blessing given to those who read this book. The other part of it is those who hear it. If you're here and you stay awake and you hear me preach it, there's another blessing. <laughs> And then the third blessing, he tells us, is those who keep the things which are in it. So there's some specific things before we get into telling the future events that God wants you to do. Now most of the Bible, 90% of the Bible, is just about the nature of God and who He is. But there are a few things that He asks you to do. For instance, tonight... The Lord's going to ask you to open the door of your heart to let Him come in. Now, how do you do that? Well, if God wants to come in, He can come in. Well, He's not going to. You've got to ask Him to come in. And unless you pray that prayer and say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Lord Jesus, I am separated from you. I am asking you to come into my life. Then He won't. But if you ask Him into your life, I'll guarantee you there's a radical blessing in that. There are certain things God asks us to do, as we'll see in this book, and if you do it, it's very simple, it's nothing hard. God's burden on us is not, e not difficult. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you'd find rest for your soul. So God's not trying to wear you out, He's trying to bless you. And so again, if you keep it, if you read it, you hear it, and you keep it, there's a blessing. Notice what it says, for the time is near. I do believe the Lord's coming back very soon. I think it's very possible, and as we're going through the book of Revelations, to see that I believe the Antichrist is probably an adult on earth right now. I believe he's very possibly in power in some lower branch in Europe, but as Europe is coming together as the European common market, the 12 nations, what I believe will be broken down to 10 nations, he will rise to a fast power. And it's not unheard of in the history of Europe. Hitler was a nobody. And literally overnight, with 
when he had words of economic recovery, boom, he was soared to the top. And we're going to learn that the Antichrist, when he comes, he's going to use that same gateway. He's going to start an economic power of Europe, except he's going to succeed, unlike Hitler. The very next thing he's going to start is a world religion. One of the prophecies that had to be fulfilled before this was to come to pass because one of the key things the Antichrist was going to do was rebuild the temple in Israel. Right now Israel can't build their temple because the Muslims have what's called the Dome of Iraq. They have a big temple themselves that they tried to put right on the holy place of the old temple. However, the newest excavations show that they messed up. That actually they're not on the actual spot of the temple but on the outer courts of the temple. So it's very possible if somebody had enough political worldwide power to say, hey, live and let live, scoot over just a little bit and give a little bit of that space to the Jews and let's build a temple. Now if you read about the temple in Leviticus, it wasn't very big. A matter of fact, the actual temple itself was about the size of this building right here. The Holy of Holies was about the size of the stage. It wasn't a humongous building. The outside of the courts now is big. So for that temple to be built, it wouldn't take a lot of money and it wouldn't take a lot of time. And with the knowledge we have today of building, it could happen very quick. But before Israel could have a temple built, it had to be a nation again. And for 2,000 years, Israel existed not as a nation. There was no Jews in Palestine. There were Palestinians, a whole other country started while they were gone for 2,000 years. It was enough time. But after 2,000 years and Hitler having persecuted the Jews, having incinerated and tortured millions of Jews all across the world, whether they were African Jews, whether they were European Jews, whether they were American Jews, or they were living in... Uh, India, whatever part of the world, wherever the Jews were, they had kept their national identity. And when they heard what had happened to their brethren who was in Germany and Austria and Hungary, what the Jews had, what they had done to the Jews there in, in the eastern part of Europe, they said, this is it. And doctors, successful doctors, successful lawyers, successful uh, businessmen, multimillionaires sold all that they had, went to Israel and started farming on desert soil. The Bible says when the Israel would come back as a nation, that that would be one of the signs of the second coming of Christ. The other would be that Israel would bloom as a rose. Today, Israel provides Europe with 30% of its flowers. It was a desert. But God gave them some very unique insights. There was actually one part that was very swampy, and they bought it up from the Arabs, but they didn't know that they had sent a group of scientists that were Jews to Japan. And while they were there, they um, invented this kind of citrus that would suck large amounts of water out of the air and not take it from its roots. And so after they had slowly bottened up the land, they were able to plant these trees and it sucked all the water up and this, what used to be a swamp, became the most incredible fertile soil. And then there was a war over it in the 60s because they said, you stole our land. They had bought every bit of that land. But they 
just expect him to live in the swamp and not make it so prosperous and so fertile and so good. Of course, the irrigation system, and God's just blessed it. That's just the bottom line. They're hard workers. They're very ingenious people, and they've been able to cultivate Israel. So now that Israel is a country again, and there, in 1967, when the six-day war, seven-day war was over, there on the news, the Israeli soldiers marching through the city of Jerusalem, marching up, and there was a little bit of the wall of the temple, the outer gate. They call it the Welling Wall that's been there. And there are these Jews weeping and weeping and weeping. All of these thousands of soldiers weeping that they had made it home to their homeland. Now they inhabited not only part of Jerusalem, but they actually inhabited the city of Jerusalem itself, not just the area of Judea. So now the platform has clearly been built for Israel to actually have their temple built. The only thing is in the way is the Muslims who are very strong politically and uh, militarily and every other way, it would definitely start World War III if they were to try to build their temple on their holy ground there. But it, the Antichrist himself is going to do it. The time's very near. There's a lot of other reasons I could go into. Earthquakes, famines, the days very much like Noah giving and taking in marriage. There's a lot of signs of the time the Bible gives us, and we're going to go into it as we continue in this book. But let me say this to you. The time's near whether the Lord's coming back or not, you may be going to see the Lord. If you were to live 70 years, that's only 25,550 days. 25,550 days. Now, I don't think any of you are going to live here 70 years. You might if you're a teenager here tonight. You might make it. You'd be in your 80s or 90s at that point. I think most of you have about 50 years left, maybe, if you don't smoke and exercise and try not to breathe. So you've got about 18,225 days left. And if you're here tonight and your God is weekends, living for the pleasure of those two and a half days, you've got about a thousand or so, a little over a thousand chances to let it rip. A thousand God weekends left. But if you figure of how many of those you'll actually be in good health, you could knock that down to about half. And if you figure out how many of those you'll actually have a little bit of spending money on, you could probably knock that down to about half. And then, of course, the other times you need to mow the yard and fix the house up and you, feel, you realize if you start whittling down and get real, you probably have about 100, maybe 150 weekends where you're going to be healthy, where things are going to be sunny and not stormy outside, where there's an opportunity for you to actually enjoy the things you want. You may have 100 shots left, and then you're going to die. And the Bible said it's appointed every man to die once, and after that, judgment. So we are all very close to meeting the Lord. And uh, statistics of people dying in car wrecks are 
getting hit by a car or choking on a chicken bone, you may be tonight or tomorrow. You never know when you're going to be meeting your maker. So the time is urgent. And in verse 4, it says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, the word seven, the number seven in the Bible, it's a very specific number. It's not, this isn't an accidental number. This is the number of completion. It's used a lot through the Bible. March seven days around Jericho. Naaman was told to dip seven times in the ocean. There were seven parts of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. There's seven notes and music, and then the eighth starts over the cycle. The word seven is the, is the number of completion. There were a lot more churches in Asia at the time. Colossae was there and Hierapolis. There's more than seven churches, but he's talking about the seven churches of Asia that also represent the seven parts of the church in the last days, as we're going to see in chapter 2 and chapter 3. So this is a very... Uh, supernatural message that God's given not only to the present churches that we're reading this but to us today because within the church we're not talking about seven different locations the Bible says that everybody who believes upon the Lord is a part of God's church that's why we're a non-denominational church we're not against denominations we're not for them but the whole word the word denomination itself means to divide And so the church is made up of people who believe in the Lord. It doesn't matter what the name of the door, uh, name of the church is outside. God doesn't care about that. He doesn't go and look, oh, let me look, see what the church name is here. Okay, oh yeah, everybody from this church makes it to heaven. It's not going to happen that way. When we get to heaven, he's not going to say, okay, here's the one denomination area over here and you know here's the other denomination over here and you know it's not going to be that way it's everybody believes upon the Lord so here tonight and as we get into it next week you're going to see that you will very possibly fall under one of the seven types of churches and he says to them as the Lord's always says grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Grace is the Greek word, charisis, which is the way they said hi. Peace is the Hebrew word shalom, which is the way the Jews said hi. The Greeks would say, power to you, man. Power to you. And the Jews would say, shalom, which is peace or literally healing, wholeness. Let there be completeness in your life. And here the Christians had taken these two words and they had changed the meaning to make them in a Christian way. The word grace means God's power to you. God wants to give you the power of salvation. And he also wants to give you a healing and a wholeness. But you can't experience the peace until you've experienced the grace. When you put your trust in God, you'll find that His Son, Jesus Christ, has died on the cross for your sins. That He's paid for every wrong thing you've ever done and whatever slip-ups you might make in the future, He already knew and He took care of those too. 
So actually, He has you completely in the palm of His hand. It says in Psalms 37, The steps of a man are ordered by the Lord, and though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord Himself will hold him up with His hand. God wants you to give the power of a relationship with Him. And if you'll come to Him, He will hold you up by His power. And you'll find that through this entire life, whether you're going to work or you have a relationship or you have children or you have parents or you're driving a car or you're trying to draw a picture, that if you call upon the name of the Lord, He'll help you. The other day I was playing Nintendo with my son. I couldn't get it. and Finally I got it. He says, I've just prayed for you, Dad. <laughs> a second later I died. And I said, well, you pray again. But God wants to be a part of every instant of your life. The Bible says God knows every hair on your head. He loves you so much. He cares for you so much. And when you enter God into every moment of your life, you'll have a peace like you've never had before. And you can never experience the grace and the peace outside of a relationship with God, the kind of peace that God offers. The Bible said there's a peace of this world, but God has a different kind of peace. The peace of this world says, oh man, I'm tired of this job. I'm just going to quit. Oh, I feel a peace until the bills come in. Oh no, I don't have a peace anymore. Oh, I just want to get away from it all. Well, here's $1,000 and two tickets to go to Disneyland. Oh, I have a piece. I get there and I got a stomachache. Oh, bummer, man. I don't have peace anymore. Peace of this world changes according to circumstances and whether or not it's making your flesh feel good. God doesn't want that up and down type of peace. He wants to give you a peace in your heart and a peace in your mind. And a presence, I can't explain it in human words. But when you receive Christ and He comes into your life, His presence is always there. And there's times that I've gone through incredibly terrible things. And I felt God's peace come upon me. And His peace settle me. And there His Spirit leads me just to pray and not to worry. And I get this peace that passes all human comprehension. I can't explain it to you in human words, but God has a peace He wants you to experience. But you won't receive it until you've after you've received Him and His strength of saving you and then being with you all the days of your life. He is, He was, and He is to come. And from the seven spirits, which is, we'll find out in a minute, are the messengers, are before His throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, washed us from our sins in his own blood. And he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus, which is the Greek word for the Hebrew word, Yahshua, which is God is salvation. Yah, which is God, Shua, which is salvation. Christ which is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the anointed one, the one who is to save. The Bible says there is no name under heaven which men can be saved other than Jesus Christ. Believe upon him that times of refreshing might come. And Jesus Christ was a faithful witness of God in human flesh. The Bible says in John 1 that he was the word and that word became flesh. 
God who created all things became flesh. Jesus Christ. And we see him as this kickback guy. We don't see him as some pushy businessman or some lawyer who's all uptight about all the little legal, legalistic facts. He was a simple carpenter who fixed things. The Bible tells us that he was lowly and humble of heart. I don't know about you, but when I've worked a long day and I'm tired, my wife says, hey, let's have somebody over. I don't like to have a high-powered personality over. I like to have somebody who's laid back and kick back and watch a video or play cards for a little bit, and if it doesn't work out, let's just eat some ice cream, and if it lasts a half an hour, great. If it lasts four hours, great. It doesn't matter. We're not trying to accomplish anything. That's the way I picture Jesus. He's this guy that the Bible talks about him as a, he has great wings, and we're comforted. We can just sort of cuddle under his wings and just be comforted by him. We find when the legalistic lawyers came and brought a woman caught in the act of adultery and threw it before him, he was bummed, not at her sin so much, but at these guys wanting to kill her, wanting to stone her to death because of her sin. And he just starts writing in the dirt. I believe he wrote the dirt of each, he wrote the dirt on each of those guys' life at the sins. <laughs> one by one, he began to write. It says, from the oldest to the youngest. Oldest had longer to commit more sin, so he fell in that category a lot quicker than the younger ones. Then he says, where are your accusers? Man, they're all gone. I don't condemn you either. Man, sinning's a bummer. Go and don't do that anymore so you don't bum your life out. What a web we can weave ourselves into. God doesn't want to see you caught. He doesn't want to see you trapped and destroyed by your own sinful ways. But he's not wanting to condemn you either. All that Jesus was as you read the Gospels, you just might want to go home tonight and read the Gospel of John. You can see who Jesus was, that he was a faithful witness of the way it's going to be in heaven, the way God thinks towards you, and his attitude and his love, his concern. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now the word firstborn, the Greeks didn't have a word preeminent or the greatest in. They didn't have such a word. And so they used the word to be firstborn because in their culture, the firstborn male was the heir of the whole house. He got everything. He, when the dad died, he was in charge of all the brothers, all the sisters, his own mom. He had everything. There was no wills in those days. They didn't have a will. The firstborn son got it all. He was the supreme person. So, when the dad's still alive, guess how they treated the firstborn son? <laughs> Pretty good. Jesus wasn't the first person ever raised from the dead. Remember Lazarus, who'd been dead four days. Jesus had raised him from the dead. He raised another boy from the dead. He raised a little girl from the dead. We see in the Old Testament people who were raised from the dead. But let me ask you, was he the most important person ever raised from the dead? <laughs> Absolutely. It says in 1, John, or 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus Christ didn't rise, that we would still be in our sins. So he raised from the dead, which tells us that he took your sins upon him, every sin you've ever committed, every sin you ever will commit. And when he died, the Bible says he buried it in the deepest sea. He scattered it as far as the east and to the west, never to be remembered again. Because he rose again from the dead, your sin is dead and buried. 
never to be remembered. And so now, if you come to God and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, forgive me, the penalty of your sin has already been taken care of. It'd be like you getting a traffic ticket and you go to pay it and somebody's already paid it. When did they pay it? Oh, before you were born. Well, what's the date on it? Well, the same date that you got the ticket. Before I was ever born, they knew that I was going to get that ticket and they went ahead and wrote the check out for it in advance. God's already taken care of your sins. Now you just have to come to Him and receive that free gift of salvation. There's a few of you smiling, saying, oh, I wish somebody did do that. Boy, that'd be great. No, you got to pay it yourself. But your sins, you don't have to pay for. Jesus did. But also it says He's the ruler over the kings of the earth. To Him who loved us. God is over all. There's no authority that God doesn't have control over. The Bible says that the king, the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. He moves it like the rivers uh, move. Like the water moves in the river. That God can turn the king's heart. And it says also, notice this, that he loves us. And he washed us from our sins to his own, in his own blood. If Jesus Christ were to come here tonight, in person, and we said, Jesus, you have two words. Go for it. He would just simply say, love you. God loves you so much. The Bible says that every single one of us, He knitted us in our mother's womb. That although there's billions of people, God knows you by name. And you're not one in a billion to Him. You're one very special person. And if you were the only person on earth that would believe in Him in all the years that Christ died until He came back again, if you were the only person that would ever believe upon Him, He still would have died on the cross. And He would have taken your sins away. God loves you tonight. He wants to take your sins away. And notice this. He has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's going to be a thousand years the last thousand years of earth, the Bible talks about, where all of us who believe on Him now in this time will be rulers in that kingdom. And we're going to be the governors and the kings. And we're the priests also. We don't have to go through any man anymore to God. We can go directly to God. In the Old Testament, there were priests who prayed for you, who had sacrificed for you. But in the New Testament, we can all come directly to God. And he says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. The clouds is a symbol of the saints in their glory. In Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about all the saints and all how they walk by faith. Hebrews chapter 12 starts out this way. It says, um, Now seeing that we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run that race with endurance. There's a great cloud of witnesses. And you know what? We're going to be one of those great men of God. Do you know what the Bible calls Christians? Saints. Holy ones. 
There's some groups that try to just saint certain people who stand out as very special people. But you know, God calls you a saint, a holy one. And we are going to be one of the great cloud of witnesses, and we're going to be coming with the Lord. When I'm going on a plane and I look at those clouds and look at the sky, I just so much just want to jump out and just sort of float in one of those clouds and sort of spring around and <laughs> it looks so soft. I'd love to skydive, I just don't have the nerve. I'm afraid of splatting. It's not so much the splatting, it's the feeling of my bones break before I splat. So I really don't want to do that, but I, when the Lord comes back, <laughs> we're going to behold Him in all His glory coming back to earth. And I'll take advantage of it then. And every eye will see Him. I don't know how it's going to happen, but every person, even the dead, even to those who now are in hell, who did not believe upon the Lord, who did not take that one way of escape, those who are under the earth in hell right now, those who are on the earth who are living at the time, those who have died and are with the Lord, and those of us who are Christians will be raptured to be with the Lord. Every one of us, after the seven-year tribulation period we're going to learn about in Revelation 4, we're all going to come back with Him. And we will be with Him in every single eye. And it says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we're going to be there with Him as when he comes back. And notice what it says. They're going to look on him whom they pierced. And all the tribes, referring, I believe, to the Jews of the earth, will mourn because of him. And Isaiah and Zechariah, it tells them, it tells us that they will look on him whom they pierced. When Jesus Christ is coming back and he has a hold of his great white stallion, and he has a hold of the reins of that, you're going to see the scars in his hands. You're going to see the scars on his forehead. And they're going to ask him, it says in Zechariah, what are these scars upon your hands? What are they there for? And they're going to realize that Jesus Christ came once as a humble servant to be the penalty for their sins, dying on a cross. But when he comes again, he's going to come as the great king and the great emperor of the world. The Bible tells us the first time that Jesus came that he did not come to the world to judge the world, but to save it. And right now we are in a dispensation of time where anyone can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. You say, well, hold on, man. You don't know how many sins I've committed. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're some mass murderer, if you're some serial killer here tonight. God will forgive you. Well, you don't know. I'm, I'm sort of a sneaky person. I'm sort of a snaky type of person. Can't really ever make a real commitment. I'm just sort of a slimy type of person if you really got to know me. God will make you real. He'll cleanse you from all that slime. If you'll come to Him, He'll take that characteristic out of your life. The Bible says when we come to Him that He starts forming our character like His character. What are those scars there for? The Bible says that He had to be pierced for our iniquities. All your covetousness and all your sexual lust, 
Christ had to have the nails in His hands, the nails in His feet, the thorns in His head, and the spear in His side. For our transgressions, He had to be bruised. They put a bag over His head and they beat Him, they hit Him. And they said, now prophesy, which one of us was hit you? Now the one thing that you learn in football, you see these guys all day getting plastered. <laughs> Nothing happens. They get up and they go the next time. But then there's that one time where the guy comes up from the backside and wham, hits him. And the guy breaks his neck or his arm or they carry him off. What happened? He wasn't able to see what took place. And our body has a natural uh, mechanism that causes us to go with the flow. When, that, when the blow's coming, we have this natural spring in us that causes us to fold and to go with the blow so we don't have the direct impact. But when we can't see it with our eyes, it's just a straight-on hit. And your body can't spring with it, and boy, you're just as brittle as a, a board. And with that bag over Jesus' head, they kept hitting him. And the Bible says in Isaiah 52 that the time they were done, that you could not tell that he had a human form, that he was beaten more than any man. His appearance was changed. Because of your transgressions, when you knew right, you knew wrong, you knew you needed to give your life to God, you knew you needed to surrender to him, but you said, I want to be my own God. You may not have said it like that. But I've got some fun I want to do tomorrow. And if I give my life to God, well, I can't go out and get high. I can't go out and sin if I give my life to God. He's just saving you from scars and from hurt. It's true. You do need to repent. Turn around. But the reason you're saying, I don't want to give my life to God, is because you're saying, I want to be the Lord of my own destiny. I want to choose what I want to do tomorrow instead of submitting to what God would want me to do tomorrow. This is why. He had to be bruised so horribly. And it says the chastisement, the crucifixion of our well-being fell upon him. Through his stripes, you can be healed tonight. And he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come. In the beginning was God. A. That's the Alpha. That's in the Greek. That's We'll all start learning Greek tonight. First letter in the Greek alphabet is Alpha, A. The last one, give you a guess, Omega, right. From A to Z, God is. A to Z, God will always be around. He always was. Take the middle letter of the alphabet if you want. He is. Take the last, Omega, he will be. The Bible tells us that God's put in all our hearts eternity, that we know that life does not, that life does go on forever. The smallest a child can ask the question, what came in the beginning? What happened out there before there was an earth, before there was water, before there was air, before there was man, before there was animals? Well, their Big Bang, for, well, where did the Big Bang come from? Where did the matter come from? Where did the space, I mean, where, where was time? Where was air? Where was, in the beginning, the only logical answer is God. God's always going to be around. What about you? The Bible says that every person who is a human being 
will live for eternity. We are made in the image of God and you are going to live in one of two places. Either in eternal hell with the devil and his angels and all those who have not taken Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, submitted to following Him, committing your life to Him, repenting of your sins and turning to do things God's way. The other place is to be in heaven forever and ever with Him. He's always going to be around. And so are you. The fact that you live, you're always going to be around now. You weren't always in the past, but you are in the present, and you always will be in the future. Where are you going to be? Jesus Christ taught more about hell than anyone. Read in the book of Matthew. He talked about it continually. And when he talked about the end times, he said this, Watch, be ready, that the coming of the Lord does not take you as a thief in the night. Are you ready tonight? The Lord can come back any day, any hour. Have you made Him the Lord of your life? He loves you, man. Even if you live to be 90, I'll tell you, there's no peace that this world can give like the Lord. You've never been loved yet unless you've been loved by the Lord. Your friend may have forgiven you for coming late, but you know the guilt of your sin. And nobody can forgive that except God. Because although you may have sinned against somebody else, the greater sin was against the one who made you and has a plan for your life and the fact that you're not fulfilling that purpose. God wants you to start fulfilling the purpose that you have. And the only way you'll ever know that plan is by surrendering your life to Him. They looked on Him whom they pierced and they mourned. Why? Because they're on earth. And Jesus Christ and all those who believed are coming with Him. And here they are going... Oh, man. What an idiot. Oh, man, I didn't receive him. And now the, the Lord's coming, and here I am. To spend eternity separated from him. It was too late. The time has come, and there's this dispensation where now is the day of salvation. How long it's going to last, I don't know. How long you're going to last, I don't know. You may die tonight on the way home. I don't know. The Lord may come back tonight. I don't know. You may live another seven years. I don't know. But I do know, apart from Christ, you don't have peace. Apart from Christ, your, your guilt and your sin is consuming you. But the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, the Almighty One, who is to come, wants to save you tonight. Let's pray.